Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winder Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. And I'm Lara Chan Baker. And I'm Bianca Vermeer. And I really like sports. <laughs> Bianca's away, isn't she, Jeremy? Where is she? Well, she's at the Super Bowl. Jackie Winder Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast from the Jackie Winder Group, which is a creative production and representation studio based in Melbourne and New York City. Each week, our two offices come together to celebrate the people and processes that operate behind the scenes to make creative work happen, as well as some of the thoughts and tools that are shaping our industry. Each week, our two offices come together to celebrate the people and processes that operate behind the scenes to make creative work happen, as well as some of the thoughts and tools that are shaping our industry. While we have a certain focus on advertising, illustration, and animation, the topics and ideas discussed here will be of universal value to anyone who creates anything at all. This podcast is all about offering a glimpse into the work we do as the bridge between clients and creatives. It's an ongoing exploration of how to wrangle the creative process to achieve excellence no matter what the medium. This week, we welcome from all the way across the road, Melbourne's very own Penny Madra, co-founder of The Good Copy, a writing school, publisher, and shop for word people. We'll talk all about words and their mysterious 4.7 Google review. But first, how is everyone going? Everyone being me? How are you going? I am going well, Jeremy. How are you going? I'm going okay. I just moved house. I'm, my my brain is a flutter. I'm also moving yeah. house is the worst thing ever. I've moved houses over twenty times, and think, yeah, I just can't cope. Over 20, twenty times, yeah. You must be a pro. No, I'm terrible at it. I'm very disorganized. I leave everything to the last day. I hate it so much, but I am very very well at the moment because it's T minus three days till Hawaii. And you're going to go to the um, banana frozen yogurt place that- Obviously, just for you, Jeremy. Just for me. And Bianca will not be joining us today. She is way too hungover from reveling in the the Eagles victory. She just discovered sport. (laughs) Yeah, we're getting lots of, um, you know, sports bar, um, you know, kind of Instagram stories. I'm I'm a bit concerned. We might need to have some kind of intervention. Next episode. Next episode. So starting off, we're going to go into some of our mini links that have been coming up in our Slack professional development channel. The first one was an article from The Guardian that came up uh, about Margaret Atwood saying that The Handmaid's Tale TV show, all the profits went to MGM and not her. And this is something that I think, yeah, the reason I kind of put it in here, because I'm gathering a long list of these kind of stories um, where people are and amazing creators are kind of not maximizing their um, profits or, you know, their living because they're giving away all the rights in their creative work. Um, We've been working on a very long term project here called Use It or Lose It, which is all about the wonderful world of licensing copyright and IP. And, you know, we see stories like this all the time. I think one of the most, one of the biggest ones is, you know, the Nike logo, the designer who did that basically sold it for like a hundred bucks and whatever. You have, you do have stories that are kind of on the other side of that. Like I think someone who did a mural for like one of the first Facebook offices, you know, was paid in stock and is now a billionaire or something. Um, But most of them are kind of, I think this happened with Rockefeller Records as well. I'm collecting a bit of a list, but this one is all about how basically someone else kind of negotiated all the rights um, deals when this show was kind of being made and you know she hasn't seen anything which is really kind of sad when you think about it yeah i mean she did sell more than 2.8 million pounds in books crazy uh in 2017 as a result of its uh you know popularity but still yes she probably should have earned from the from the show but she sold all the rights originally in to make a movie in 1990 and this is what i most, didn't know existed uh, but yeah apparently there was a previous version i don't know anything yeah. about it either but it, i don't think it was on many people's radar but this happens all the time when we're trying to negotiate usage as well so like you never know what's going to be kind of you know the biggest thing or what's not and we have to kind of do our due diligence to make sure that totally. we're protecting and people rights. always say you know oh we'll never use it for that but uh we just need we just need all the rights because it's easier but we'll 
never use it for that. And I'm like, well, you really never know. It's yeah, a part of a much bigger conversation, but it was interesting to see it kind of come up this week. Um, Laura, you have two links that you're um, putting in for B as well. What do you got? So the first is one that Bianca sent through, which is uh, a piece on Wired titled Podcast Listeners Really Are the Holy Grail That Advertisers Hoped They'd Be. Basically, it's just sort of looking at, um, you know, quite recently, Apple's uh, podcast analytics feature was you know, made available. Um, it's really cool. We have access to it. And so and, and we're super popular, <laughs> right? <laughs> you are being engaged. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like uh, podcasters everywhere breathed a bit of a sigh of relief because it's fantastic to be able to actually measure this stuff now. But of course, there was um, a bit of a worry that that podcast bubble might burst and that, um, you know, the minute that anyone actually got a closer look at it, we might sort of see that all the ad dollars that are being poured into podcasts now uh, are not really worth it. But Luckily, it's um, it's early days yet, but it seems like, uh, you know, to be the complete opposite, it seems that podcast listeners really are the sort of hyper-engaged, super supportive audience that that everyone hoped they would be. This is so true. And this also explains like why I have bought so much from Casper over the last few months and just get it kind of shipped here and don't eventually use it. Do you um, use Squarespace and uh, stamps.com? I do use all those things. One, actually, I should mention, if anyone has not seen the episode from Kroll Show, all taking off um, stamps.com. It is one of the best episodes of I haven't of seen TV any ever. episodes of Kroll Show. Highly recommend. Um, and what was your second link, Lara? My second a bit, link... A bit relevant to today's discussion. A bit relevant to today's discussion. How did that happen? Um, so the second link was an article on Medium, which I actually shared with Penny earlier in the week as well, um, by a fantastic copywriter called Claire Barry. And she wrote this piece titled, Everyone's a Copywriter, Right? And... Uh, it's, it's a brilliant read and you really do need to read it to um, experience the hilarity and, I mean, really just how true it is for yourself. But, um, you know, she talks about how there's this joke in the creative industry that everyone is a designer and, you know, making a bit of light over how infuriating it can be to have someone without a visual background tell a designer how things should look. Um, and it's this sort of big problem uh, caused by this sort of client is always right attitude. Um, and she's looking at how, well, that's very much the case when it comes to copywriting as well. And so she tries to sort of dissect some of the uh, things that your copywriter is probably thinking when you're engaging them on a project, but probably won't say to your face. Uh, and it's it's painfully true. Pain, and Penny will probably back me up later. It, it's it's painful to read, but it's um, but it's great. It, it's it's really really true. And I think my favorite part here is when they sort of look at because um, this is something that I'm uh, always sort of fighting against. Um, I guess she talks about the two different types of grammar users and how some are descriptivist grammar users and others are prescriptivist grammar users, and looking at how um, grammar is essentially, especially when it comes to commercial copy, grammar. The traditional rules of grammar are guidelines and they can be, once you know how to use them, they can be broken and tweaked and twisted and pulled in order to perform best for whatever it is you're trying to do. Well, I think we'll get into some of these topics in a few minutes with our we guests. Sure will. We will post these links to everything that we talk about here in our show notes, um, which you can view at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz or sign up to our weekly podcast specific newsletter at tinyletter.com slash JackieWinter. And we will go move on into our musical interlude now. Yeah. 
For those of a certain age and demographic here in Melbourne, Penny Madra is someone who needs no introduction. From the days that we co-founded Is Not Magazine together, to her time as the editor of City Guide The Thousands, to her long tenure as an arts writer for The Age, Penny is someone who has lived and breathed words her entire career and has taken that passion and craft to the founding of The Good Copy, a writing school, publisher, and shop for word people. While our two industries may not be in the exact same circles anymore, we thought bringing Penny in would be a perfect way to kickstart our non-industry interviews, especially given all the conversation we have around the ever-so-important role that written communication plays in creative production and life in general. So without further ado, please welcome my best friend in the world, Penny Madra. Well, hello. Hi, Penny. Hi, Penny. Thanks for having me. I tell you what, this is an intimate box. This really is. Yes. The hot box. Welcome. We're all sweating. It's the secret of your success, I think. Well, who would have thought that a contractor would have built me a two by two foot box that four people could actually sit in, but we've managed to do it. I'm very excited to be here in the box. We're so excited to have you, Penny. We love words. We love nerds. So and we you're love right you. at home. Then we love you. <laughs> so look, give us a bit of an origin story. I mean, the good copy is a really unique kind of business in terms of the different kind of arms and branches kind of it has. Mm. How did it come about? Why did you start it? And how would you do describe it to Uber drivers or hairdressers or people you have to talk to about it, you know, that you meet for the first time? You're right. It's much easier to describe now. I just say, it's a writing school. We teach writing. And is that it, though? Well, that's the thing. It didn't start that way. You know, we started because it's really hard for writers to make money. This was my observation. (laughs) It doesn't take a genius to observe that. Um, (laughs) And I guess, especially at the thousands where we didn't have a huge commissioning budget, right? And these people are quite talented. And it's just, how are you going to build this career? It just doesn't seem possible. Like, no one gets a full-time job in editorial writing anymore. Anyway this being the challenge, we founded the good copy initially as just a way for writers to make really nice bank, (laughs) you know, like as in copywriting did then and still does pay really well. And when I say copywriting, I don't mean just that sort of traditional madman definition. It's not just, I'm not talking about just billboards. I'm talking about website copy, you know, the huge reams of content that the internet has given rise to and constantly demands. Mm. Um, So there's a demand for that. And the idea with good copy was, well, you know, a writer can pursue their career, pursue their dream of writing editorial or writing a novel, but they can pay the rent because they work, say, three days at the good copy. This was the dream. It is not as easy in reality. Um, That is not surprising. Some of our staff have really made the most of that. Brodie Lancaster is one of them. She, during her time at the good copy, written her own memoir, which has come out to varied and great acclaim. We, one of Um, our artists, did the cover for it. Did, is that right? Great cover. Do you know what else? Great title. <laughs> oh, can't take responsibility for that. The yeah, title, no. <laughs> for those who are wondering, is "No Way." Okay, fine. <laughs> Which I feel and punctuation like, plays a big role in that cover. Really does. Anyway, so some of our writers have done that, you know, and written their own books. Um, most recently, the head of our grammar school, Meredith Forrester, has a, a book out called "Make Grammar Great Again," <laughs> because <laughs> she has this hobby where she corrects Donald Trump's grammar on Twitter. She tries to sort of engage with a thing she can engage with. And that's it's a great that, book. Yeah, well, it's pretty funny. So anyway, so people, they have in a way made it real. I think what was hard for the good copy was essentially we were providing content, which, which meant we were a creative agency. That's what we were really. And is that now split off to a different business? Yeah. And right. so what we, and what we found kind of as it grew was two things. First, a creative agency will find it very hard to compete with other creative agencies if it seems to be a grammar school. You know what I mean? <laughs> like people will go, why would I get a grammar school to do, like as in a place that teaches grammar, why would I get you to do my content strategy? And we're like, yeah, okay, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but also um, 
creative agencies scale in a different way. Um, and what we realised was we started doing the Stop Grammar Time course. Yes, that is an MC Hammer reference, although most of our students don't get it because they have never heard of the 90s. What? How well, are I mean, your students? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> I assumed <laughs> that three people and four would year olds. know an MC Hammer reference. When no, we're so one. old. Yeah, we are old, That's right? crazy. You guys are old. Even in fact, you know, even the name of the business, the good copy, is supposed to be this reference, that, but no one gets it. I still don't get it. Okay, well, if you went to school before computers, you would be familiar with the fact that you had to write a good copy of every essay. Like you draft, the, you draft it and then you would write a good copy. Huh. I and, never knew that. And you used to say to your friends at lunch, have you done your good copy yet? Huh. That's what it is. No one gets it. Like I two, didn't know there was a time before computers, people Benny. <laughs> <laughs> people used to come into our shop and ask whether they, we could photocopy their stuff. And anyway, <laughs> it's just been a disaster. Anyway, the point is, long story short, the school, after we launched it, really took off. And then we found it to be kind of efficient to split the creative agency off and let it be its own thing. And, and what's now, that called now? It's called Single Double. I don't hate it. It's not a hamburger. I don't hate the name. Um, the good copy is now the school and any kind of public word-related stuff that we do. Right. And you're still working across both. True. People still ask me stuff like, how much money should I put on this Facebook ad? You know, those what sorts of questions. <laughs> I go, I don't know. How much have you got? <laughs> uh, anyway, so yes. Well, I want to know a little bit more about your life when you're in the agency side and the kind of briefs that you were working through there and just a yeah, bit about sure. the creative, well, writing brief in general. Obviously, we deal with briefs day in, day out for artwork, and I imagine there is some crossovers in terms of what's needed and and what you're looking for. But uh, I guess we want to know what your process looks like from brief to delivery and what a writing brief even looks like. Well, let me say this. I feel that people do not know how to brief writing because everyone feels at some level like they're a writer, which is what this Medium article was about. And true that. It's true. Everyone is a writer if they can write words in a language that they're fluent in. This they is write, true. They write things. The question is how equipped are they to write something for a reader and to consider context and to consider what the rules are and whether you want to break them. Um, and, and I just feel people really don't know how to navigate that. That's interesting. I mean, I, On the I, client side. Well, Maybe that's kind of a semantic issue with with what the with what your job title is, writer. You know, it's like when you talk about illustrator, photographer, like not everybody could be an illustrator, not everyone is a photographer, but mm. everyone is a writer by nature if they write, as you say. It's true. And and let's let's put it this way. I was reading a book this this week called How Writing Works. I can't even give you a judgment on it because I'm like a chapter in, but she has <laughs> this great Rosalind, her name is, she has this great point. She said, There are working writers. Dying breed, okay, you know, like newspaper <laughs> reporters. And so. Then there are writing workers, which is the rest of us. Pretty much every job involves a lot of writing. The people who come to our grammar school, we once had an AFL footballer and an helicopter engineer and like a PhD same student person? In, in the wow. same No, same class. <laughs> Three different people. Everyone has to do writing. In Australian schools at least, syntactical grammar, mm. you know, hasn't been taught since... 1972 or something. Mm. So everyone sort of has to do writing and most people have a level of imposter syndrome about it. So I guess we all are writers, except people who work as copywriters are professional writers. And um, and I don't think that that's an arbitrary distinction. I think um, professional copywriters kind of know how to make these decisions better than others. There are two ways I think that briefing goes wrong. The first is someone receives the copy and with their limited knowledge of grammar, (laughs) critiques it. And people tend to internalise these rules of grammar, things like don't start a sentence with a conjunction. 
which is not a thing. You know, that's that's a grammatical <laughs> yes. superstition is what we call it. Or they'll internalise a particular style rule, style being a thing that could go either way, just a decision. Yeah, you something make. that like, their teacher yelled at them over and over again. Yeah. The really common one is if I were to make a possessive on a cafe owned by Chris, Chris's cafe, is it S apostrophe S or is it S apostrophe I thought it was S apostrophe. That is in a style Australia, decision, Jeremy, yeah. and broadly an American one. Yes. So they'll correct style decisions as rules when they're not. So then how do you drag out a good brief from a client? Most clients, what they'll do is I think, I imagine it as they sort of black box the writer. They say, here, here, writer, we sell luxury scarves. Now go into that box and do some wizard slavery, you know, and then you as the writer are inside the box and you've got to come up, somehow come up with the tone for the brand. You've got to come up with like all the other stuff about the luxury scarves that you might even be inventing. You know, that stuff is not possible. You can't do it. All you're doing is I spent my whole 20s pretending that, that it was possible to do that and you can't. Young writers tend to condemn themselves to that instead of going back and going, no, sorry, this is the strategy department's job. They have to figure out how this brand talks, who its audience is. What else about these scarves can we say other than it, they are luxurious? You know. <laughs> so does that mean that strategy departments should be hiring writers or that strategists should be writers? Um, no, I think what needs to go into a writing brief is all that strategy mm. and it should be pre-thought before the writing starts. If you don't pre-think it, the writing will be bad. The writer has no choice other than to either magic you something up or write something bad. Mm. So when we are briefing or reverse briefing writing, we make sure that all the questions that cause writing to be bad or cause it to be stressful in the process of being done are answered before the writer starts working. No, it's it's, it's yeah. really interesting because like, I think when you look at some of the briefs that we get, you know, for huge brands, and we, we get to kind of style guides sometimes that they're going to be giving to sometimes an artist and it'll have like, okay, here are our brand colors, here's our fonts, here's our the illustration or photography that we use, this is our logo, these are all the way the logos can use, but nothing goes in there about brand voice or anything like that. Yeah. And you would think that, like you're saying, that should be an integral part of it, which I it's agree true. it should. And imagine how the writer feels because they're sitting there with major brand decisions like, is this brand a we and is its reader a you? That's not the writer's decision, <laughs> no. you know. Do you see what I'm saying? So we try to focus on those questions that people don't answer. And I, I would say that kind of the vast majority of the brief is just answering those questions before it even gets to the, like, the nuggety content. Mm. Um, and, I, I mean, to summarise, I would say it would be one, know why, know why you are saying this, why are you saying this. Often there's a fault even at the objective level. Like clients will say, we're sending an e-newsletter. And then I'll go, but you don't even have a website. You know what I mean? <laughs> like literally it reminds me of that tweet. Remember when the Colonel took over KFC's Twitter? And what? this was actually weird Twitter done by brands well. KFC do great Twitter. We've talked about this. KFC's yeah, but it was the Colonel took over and he was basically a 19th century industrialist or something. <laughs> <laughs> but his fa my favourite tweet of his was, retweet my tweet, folks. <laughs> <laughs> he totally got it. Anyway, so know why you're saying it. And a lot of that, the answer to that question is actually understanding the, the overlap like between, say, okay, you got a message, your reader has a life, like find the overlap, you know, before anyone starts writing. Can you give us a more concrete example of that? Let's say you had a brand that trains tradies and you have a message, which is come and train at our tradie training school. <laughs> Good message. <laughs> you have to kind of dramatize it. You've got to imagine the tradie going, so what? Yeah. And then you're going, because if you get a certificate for in building and construction, your wage will go up. And he goes, so what? I don't care about that. And then it's like, you know, you just have to keep going. So what, so what, so what? Until you get an actual overlap and not just a, a brief that's all about the message and not at all about the reader. That to me sounds like more copywriting, like, you know, for advertising, you know, in terms of, yeah, getting to that kind of core 
idea of messaging. How does that kind of fit with, I guess, yeah, the more kind of technical side of kind of grammar and syntax and all those things? Like, are those kind of two, are those two kind of separate skills that need to be kind of developed together? Or, you know, do, do you think it's more helpful to focus on one rather than the other? I think there's no point understanding syntactical grammar unless you can put it in a context. And the funny thing is when people use the term grammar they often use it in a really all-encompassing way. And what they mean is everything. They mean style, spelling, you know, context-dependent, code switching. They mean the structure of the sentence. They mean punctuation. When, I guess, if you use it in a really narrow sense, grammar is really just the order we put words in, in a sentence so they make sense to other people. You, to add to that, you can add style decisions. Add to that, you can add usage, which is how are we using this language now as opposed to when we used to use it? Like, where do we plant our flag in this river of language? Are we back down in whilst or are we here at while? You know what I mean? It's like you, you, all a lot of this stuff is context dependent on like who is this audience? Um, and it's not strictly grammar, but I like to think that what's the point of of having a command over the structure of a sentence unless you are doing the more important thing, which is considering the reader, like generous, being generous to the reader. That's what good writing is. It is generous to the reader. That's what I think. And the second thing is find something to say, and you'll be shocked by how many briefs have literally zero nuggets in them. Like you cannot write something good that has no nuggets. In other words, they have no chance to be interested unless there are nuggets. Like the less information that is there, the less chance anyone has of being interested in it. Um, but brands will give you a brief. Max and I actually once got a brief and it was like, wow, this is three pages. This is so great. And then when we actually looked at it, the only pin downable things in it were luxury and then scarves. <laughs> like there were zero nuggets. And it was like, um, you've got to do the work initially of pinning down what I call the mum facts at very least. It's like, what would my mum say to that? She'd go all right, well, how much do they cost? What are they made of? Where can I buy them? Is it only online or do I have to go down to the shops? Are they warm or are they kind of summery? You know, all those normal questions that brands tend, brands can take risk avoidance to the point where they won't say anything about their product that's useful. Um, other forms of risk avoidance that you can get past in the briefing stage are just how specific can the language be? Good writing is human. In other words, human on an emotional and a visual scale. And what I mean is that's the difference between a word like unique or a word like luxurious and a word like red or rock. Mm. Like concrete and visual things are very human and people can retain them. Brands are so scared of being specific that, that they will try to step back and say, we're luxurious and unique. We're, um, what else do they say? They're innovative. If you, say, if you tell someone you're innovative, they can't hold on to that. It dissipates. It's sort of like a cloud. If you tell them something specific, like we sell water to raise money for third world sanitary systems. Do you see how concrete that is? Yeah, I mean, that's the yeah. classic problem of cliches. We're like, yeah. you know, they said so much that they mean nothing <laughs> yeah. and that you just, they go in yeah. one ear and out the other. That's right. So you've got to get the permission and like, you've got to get the permission and they have to jump on board with the specifics as well. Like what specifically can we say about this? So how does that kind of then play out when you're in the middle of a project, you know, in, in terms of feedback? So what is what does feedback kind of look like and how do you kind of manage that process to get there? I find that, well, commissioning writing is still, you know, it's it's something new for some people. Yeah, hardly anyone's ever done it because usually, actually, it it's rare that it happens. Most people have to do it internally and do it themselves. Um, what we've realised is the key to people feeling good about writing that's done on behalf of their brand is that they've have been involved in it. That's actually the key to them feeling good about it. So we really front way all this stuff. You mm. know, um, for instance, we would never if we weren't clear on the tone, we would never proceed with a whole document we do I guess what we called a tone test 
And I especially will do that when I sense that in on their side, there's a disagreement about the tone mm. or about the audience. So you can do a tone test, which is still a little bit inventing it. I've in, recently come up with this new strategy that I do, which is I call a word list because I'm super skeptical of, you know, when a tone is set down for a brand, like it'll, it'll be like, this is our tone and we speak this way. And often I think it's super overdone in like, it's almost like the tone is a costume that everyone has to put on. And it's like this with layers of makeup and they have to like <laughs> put on this persona, which is just going to be terrible. There's going to be no authenticity, no eye contact at all. Um, so what I do is I sort of reimagine that as what I call like a tray of accessories. Like brands do sound a certain way, right? They have a sound. They have a character. Absolutely. Jackie Winter does. Yeah, you sure do. Um, and there's what, what, I've tried to do, what I've tried to do, and I think it works, is just distill that tone into a single page of words and turns of phrase. An example of a word list that I made recently was um, for Ace Hotels. Uh, the reason we made this word list is because a good tactic with a client who doesn't have a sense of their tone can be to ask them, who sounds like you want to sound? Mm. <laughs> and this client said, we want to sound like Ace Hotels. We love the way they sound. That seems close to our character. Mm. So we abstracted it into a word list um, and it feels something like collection, fresh, stories, human, try not to be a jerk, feels right, beautiful thing, sleep with us, bustling, kick it. Local, thoughtful, easy, favourite, artists, love, right up our alley. So, and you, if you look at it, mm. you can feel, it's almost like if you if you did a magic eye, like you just cross your eyes a little bit and look at their I've exemplary text. I've never seen or heard of this as then, a tactic before and I really like it. I like this idea of getting helps, a snapshot of the sort of overall word usage without writing you, yeah, out a full sort of. Without writing it out. Yeah. And the point being that if everyone can agree on a word list like this, even if it's a bit longer, it captures the character of the brand and it enables a writer to be natural and spoken in their human normal tone but just put these accessories on well, it's kind of like a, like a word cloud when they do when they have yeah. debates or kind of you know speeches they can That's just exactly kind of feed it. that in so yeah. i'd be surprised if there wasn't some kind of tool out there like an ai that would kind of comb an entire company's website and all their social media and Next yeah. business idea that. great yeah. idea jeremy don't you beat me to the punch on that <laughs> here's a word list for katz's deli in um, new york city um cured slow yep you read that right legendary new yorkers oy vey Still the staple, <laughs> colossal corned beef. Can you feel it? It's saltier. This is a you know, word list for Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. Australian fans will recognise this word list. I'm going to read it to you and you'll know the brand. Are you okay, ready? I'm in. First crack, wild times, dedicated, started small, friends at your leisure. Phoebe. Have a look. No dickheads. Meredith. Meredith. Yeah, yeah for sure. Can you feel it? I can feel it. Yeah. And so it's just a really good tactic because if you can work with the brand on agreeing on this word list, then you as a writer can go away and produce something that they feel, you know, involved in, connected to, they're on board. So, yeah, that's definitely one yeah. way of getting things going when there's a client who is perhaps not so sure of their tone or yeah. even if they are just to confirm. Great way to start it off. I wanted to like follow on from that there. I mean, you know, you might have a client who, as you said, you know, that they're not necessarily experts in writing. You are. So they've done the right thing by bringing someone in who mm -hmm. does know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they're not experts in this makes it really hard for them to brief because they don't necessarily know what it is they're looking for. Or what it, You know, mm -hmm. they, they know they want something good written, but yeah. they don't know how to communicate that, that works. to you or how yeah. that works. So I guess what do you advise in those instances for either the person who's trying to brief or for someone who's trying to get that kind of brief out of them? Yeah. So I would advise be super clear about the recipient and don't 
you know, who is this audience? And don't abstract it. Like, don't use words like the audience is vibrant. The audience is unique. Be specific on the person level almost. Say, is this audience Doreen, the accountant? You know, think of a person that you can actually, everyone can look at and agree on, you know, for the um, fictional tradie training company. It might be deciding between, say, a tradie who is pushing 40, has two new Hiluxes, and an investment property versus the tradie who is like a little shit-kicking carpenter, you apprentice. know, who's doing yeah. cashies on the weekend. Um, <laughs> that's going to be a huge difference. So choose a specific person. Um, and brands will find that very confronting but clarifying as well. One of my favourite brand stories in the whole world is the story of the famous advertising duo Mo and Joe, um, Australian duo. They are famous in Australia for their jingles. Jingles are what they did. They did the VB jingle. You can get it any old how. Matter of fact, I've got it now. Remember that ad? Uh, Every song from the eighties that you were too late. They did it anyway. Well, that was Publicist Mojo, right? They were bought by Publicist. Yes, correct. Mo and Joe were the two original Jingle Dudes. Anyway, they were making an impact, and they got invited over to America to pitch to Coke. They didn't seem as prepared as the other people who were pitching to Coke. Like the Coke guy sort of clocked that they just had a guitar and they hadn't like brought any slides or anything. (laughs) And so the Coke guy is like trying to rile them up, maybe test them. You know, they're off on stage, and he goes, "All right, well." who do you think the audience is for a Coke? And Mo goes, any cunt with a mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly, and apologies to our American listeners, that's how Australians talk. But it is true, that is the audience for Coke. The point is, it's hard to think of another brand for whom that is the audience. Yes. Every other brand has something specific. You simply cannot address any cunt with a mouth. You have to go specific. So answer specifically (laughs) about the audience. I suppose the only other thing is make sure that you, the brand, and at every level of criticism is going to be okay with the tone that's agreed on. Make sure if there's some hoity-toity person who likes all your language to be top and tails, you know, and a cigar, (laughs) um, they got on board before it starts because they'll just wreak havoc on the copy and start to correct. I mean, that's the type of person who's going to come in and see got milk and change it to, have you got milk? I don't know. I hope this was helpful for people. It absolutely is, Penny. (laughs) And just to be even more helpful for those out there who want to improve their written communications, are there any resources that you can point to, books, websites, courses (laughs) (laughs) that people can take? Uh, I have, yes, I have a few favourite books at the moment. I'm quite obsessed with a book called Nicely Said, Writing for the Web with Style and Purpose. Mm -hmm. This is authored by two amazing chicks. Sorry to the chicks if they're listening. Um, Nicole Fenton and Kate Keefily. Kate Keefily wrote the MailChimp Style Guide. If you have ever read and admired it, you will know how good this book is. Yes, it's beautiful. It's called Nicely Said. You can just Google it. You'll find it. Oh, I need Um, to read this. Yeah. I also really love a book that is referred to as The Strunk and White of Business Writing. And it's called Writing That Works. It's kind of old school, as in it's from the Mad Men era, but there's the recent edition updates um, with stuff to do with email. Um, but they're so straight on just straight talk. Like I, one of their first anecdotes is like, um, when God wanted people to stop building the Tower of Babel, he did not smite them down with a thunderbolt. He said, let us go down there and confound their language so they do not understand one another's speech. It's like, yeah, hell yeah. God knew what was going to mess things up and it's stupid bad writing. And the last thing I'll say is there's a book called um, Right to the Point by Sam Leith. And um, Sam Leith is a really genuinely funny British dude. Um, 
And one of the unlike, few. <laughs> and he is writing a book about grammar in the truest sense. Like, how do we navigate this and kind of understand the difference between descriptivists and prescriptivists? How do we fight back at the kind of grammar Nazis that attack us in the Guardian comment section and on Facebook? You know, he gives you the full kind of outline of it. How to navigate it mentally um, with really excellent, yes, British humour. So Americans will be baffled by it, but really great. Right to the point. Anyway, that's, those are my books. And for people who no longer know what books are, any websites that you... <laughs> oh, God. Well, to? the MailChimp Style Guide. Mm-hmm. Hells, yeah. That is an open resource. Mm-hmm. Like they, they wrote it as a thing that they intended, really, mm. for people to co-opt and up- update for their own purposes. Um, what else? Um, Shopify has a new guide for writing for people who have Shopify stores called Polaris. Mm. I think that's what it is. But they have an excellent write it section. You're a fan of Grammar Girl as well, aren't you? Oh, Grammar Girl. She's great. Minion Fogarty, um, podcaster and also blogger about grammar. She's American minion, but she never stops, never stops. I don't even imagine her sleeping. Um, She's always on. (laughs) The thing about her is type in your question into Google and then type Grammar Girl. She is a good resource as opposed to something like Grammarly because Minion makes explicit Grammar Girl makes explicit the difference between something that's to do with grammar and the sentence's structure and something that is a style decision, which is not a big deal. Style decisions are make a decision and stick to it. Sources like Grammarly do not make that explicit. So they kind of perpetuate that problem of people going, getting about the place, yelling at people about style decisions, which is a huge waste of time. Thank you for listening. Penny, (laughs) before we let you get out of this very, very hot room, where can people find out more about you, more about the good copy and more about the courses? Our website, thegoodcopy.com.au, and then they can click on school. Um, We've got two courses. One is Stop Grammar Time, which is grammar. Another one is Write Right, which is less about the nuts and bolts and more about that briefing process I was talking about. Like how do do you know if writing's good or not? Like how do you even judge it? What makes writing good? It's a little bit abstract. I guess you just have to take a leap leap of faith. I, I would describe it broadly as a copywriting course that doesn't spend too much time talking about right-branching sentences. Well, I've done Stop Grammar Time and I've done a a portion of Write Right Mm. and both are absolutely brilliant and I definitely couldn't recommend them high enough for both people who work, uh, you know, in copywriting or people who just have to write every day or just people who are word nerds like ourselves. Well, thanks, guys. Penny, thank you so much for coming by. Woohoo! Thanks for having me in your box. Ending like we like to every week, the most Melbourne and New York thing that's happened, but we don't have a New York thing. So maybe, Penny, I'm going to try to rope you in here um, for me because I actually haven't thought of anything yet. But I'm just curious, what's the most, is, is there anything, did you see anything this week that was a very Melbourne thing at all? Bike share bikes in a tree. That's very Melbourne. <laughs> Are you talking about a thing on the internet? There's an O-bike oh. on top of the Sun Theatre in Yarraville in the cinema. <laughs> I see it every morning on the way. Train. <laughs> do you mean on the internet? That is completely valid. We do not have to go any further. Thank you very much, Pan. Laura, what about you? What's the uh, most Melbourne I, thing you've seen? Well, I also didn't think of a Melbourne thing, but because I'm off to Hawaii, I've got a Hawaii thing, even though I'm not there yet. So Mel and I have just, I'm, I'm going with Mel, who also works in the office, who's Jeremy's um, PA, and uh, she's just also everything. Um, We are going off to Hawaii for two weeks. And so we've been, of course, practicing very, very heavily every single day, very diligently, our shakas, um, just to make sure that we like fit in with the local people. Shaka. Shaka I installed the custom shaka emoji on our Slack because, yeah, because me- It's very important. It's very important. It's like, it just expresses so much. It's my most used emoji. I love it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Bianca. 
Thank you, Jeremy. I like sports. <laughs> This has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast about creative project management and production and just making things happen in general. Our producer is Areej Noor. You can find the Jackie Winter Group on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and Winter like the season. And you can email us with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcast at JackieWinter.com. Archives of all of our shows and show notes can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.biz, and you can sign up to our podcast-specific weekly newsletter at tinyletter.com slash JackieWinter if you want the show notes and episode links every week when it's released on Friday. Our theme music is by Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on SoundCloud.com slash JackieWinter. If you love what you hear, you can help us out by subscribing on iTunes, rating us, and commenting to details on our website at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.biz. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. She thinks I'm in the game because I'm in I hope this is okay. Are people usually funnier than this? You're doing no, you're fantastic. fantastic, Penny. Oh my god, okay. Are people right. usually funnier? <laughs> That's your main concern. Well, I don't know. <laughs>